Hello everyone, and welcome to the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. Together, we'll watch, snack, and chat our way through books and films set in the ancient world. We bring our expertise as ancient historians to the table to dissect every detail. We hope you'll grab your favourite beverage and snacks and join us every week on this adventure. Before we start spilling the tea, a brief note on our content. The Reading Party podcast is created for adult audiences. The stories of the ancient world are full of violence and undisguised sexual content, and your hosts aren't afraid to curse up a storm. For those reasons, this podcast is not suitable for under-18s, and certain episodes may not be suitable for those living with trauma. This season, we're focusing on stories set in ancient Egypt, and we'll be bringing in guest hosts that are subject matter experts to help us really dig into the history of what we're reading and watching. With that in mind, let's get going. Lexi and I have our teas and are so ready to start spilling the tea on a ton of ancient stories. Hello everybody and welcome back to the reading party. We are doing part two of River God and we are joined once again by the wonderful Dr. Brianna Jackson. And I realized about halfway through our last recording that we didn't ask Brianna to introduce herself, which is big oversight on our part because she's a, a friend. We don't need an introduction. We know who she is, but no one else listening does because they can't see your wonderful face. So Brianna, could you just tell everyone uh, who you are, what you do, and maybe where they can find you if they would like to see more of your stuff. I am an Egyptologist. I just received my, or I, well, not receive, I earned it, my PhD two years ago. And now I'm a postdoctoral fellow with the American Research Center in Egypt. So I'm based in Cairo. And I don't know if the call to prayer is being registered on my microphone, but it's going right now. I have this fellowship for two years and I'm basically turning my dissertation into a book as well as working on a website that I hope you all go to, thebanmappingproject.com. And so I'm doing a lot of content creation for that. We're making databases on things. We just did Valley of the Queens. And my big project for that is going to be all of, all of the temples on the West Bank of Luxor, which is going to be massive. And what else am I doing? I specialize in the Amarna period, but I am a huge fan of the second intermediate period, which is when River God takes place. And I am on Instagram and Twitter and that threads thing. What else am I on? Oh, YouTube. So <laughs> that's the major one. Duh. I was waiting for you to get to that. I was like, Brianna, you make videos sometimes, don't you? Just occasionally. But yeah, you can find me at Dr. Brianna Jackson on Twitter. I am Baladria, B-A-L-A-D-R-I-A. And Instagram, it's the underscore real underscore Baladria. I'm not really doing much on Twitter except like going crazy over fan art of good omens. So <laughs> if you if you want to follow that, then there you go. <laughs> we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And I have not watched the second season of Good Omens or seen any fan art. So I am, after we finish talking, probably going to go to Twitter and do some poking around and see what you found, because that sounds just delightful. It's a good season. 
Very cool. I hope you I hope you see it soon. I I, lo- I loved the book as a kid. I loved the book as an adult and I really enjoyed the first season. But we should not get too far into that because I will just keep <laughs> talking about good omens and that is while fantastic, not at all related to what we're talking about today. So we should talk about River God instead. And where did we leave off last time? We left off the Hyksos had invaded and essentially conquered the Delta and were heading south to Thebes, Karnak area. And it was all very terrifying and scary because they have these like giant horse monster things and no one knows what the hell a horse is. And it's yeah, just not, not pleasant. And of course, the oh hello, kitty. That was you, Atali, <laughs> yelling. Sorry. <laughs> he, no, he is beautiful and delightful. And actually, if you are interested in in cat photos, Brianna does have a cat, and there are photos, and he is yes, simply delightful. So, River God, yes. So there's an, there's another like battle, and they get to Pharaoh's mortuary temple, which obviously. The, the Hyksos are trying to get over the river too. And there's a lovely naval battle that the Egyptians win because they're sailors. They live on a river. It's what they do. The Hyksos don't. So they're kind of fucked, really. And Tanis, not Tanis. Oh, Tater, there we go. Captures some horses, which is very exciting. He likes horses, it turns out. They don't eat human flesh, which, you know, shocker absolute shocker to most of the Egyptian army and the horse thing continues to be a main plot point throughout the rest of the book which I enjoyed very much I thought that was interesting and clever and we find out who the traitor is that you know told the Hyksos where all the cool shit was and how to get into cities and and how to get to Pharaoh's mortuary temple which is full to the brim with gold and again zero people were surprised Zero people were surprised to find out that it was Lord Intef because he fucked off and we knew he'd come back. So here he is. And everyone is very, very upset and very angry with an I'm like, you did not see this coming. How, when you realized there was a traitor helping the Hyksos, how on earth did you not immediately think, hmm, maybe the traitor that we tried to kill who escaped, maybe he might have something to do with this. No, no, it's complete, total mystery. Sorry, mild sidetrack there. So ultimately, our Egyptian heroes work out that they can't win. There aren't enough of them. They are grossly outnumbered and really outgunned because they don't have chariots. Their horses are, well, figures of terror for the vast majority of their fighting force. So they ultimately load as many people up on the boats as they can and as much of the treasure from Pharaoh's tomb and Pharaoh who is removed from various sarcophagi and caskets and taken on board the boat because Lostris refuses to leave him because she made a promise that she would make sure he was buried appropriately and you don't break a promise to dead pharaoh. That seems like, as far as karma goes, a bad, bad move. So they load him up and they sail upriver. And it's really interesting to see or to have narrated the journey upriver it's actually downriver the whole egypt north south upper lower thing is is very confusing to absolutely everyone except egyptologists so they're going downriver which is to upper egypt or through upper egypt down into nubia and kush and and the rest of the african continent but you've got obviously the cataracts which are these massive like 
rapid rock areas you can't really sail a boat through especially not massive barges full of women and children and uh, a whole army so they end up using ropes to pull the the boats through which seems very very innovative to me and they lose some of the boats obviously and a bunch of people get out at elephantine and just stay there and then the rest of the force keep going because they can't stay they will be killed by the hyksos and that the journey part is actually very long and very involved and takes several years and on the journey the the prince grows up and Tater continues to, to narrate, and he has several more miraculous inventions, including a spoked wheel, and he makes a, a compound bow, which, fantastic, great, well done. You are a genius, sir. We all we all know and applaud your geniusness. And he is made master of horses, so he is in charge of all of the horse-related activities. So he puts together cavalry and builds chariots and trains everyone in how to ride chariots and all this kind of cool and fancy stuff. And they hunt elephants, which turns out to be a super bad idea because they don't know how to kill elephants and it is pretty tricky and they nearly die. And then they're saved by the young prince who comes up with this chariot and it's described as he can barely see over the top. And I'm like, yes, I know many children who would absolutely do that. I uh, mother to several of them. So that was amusing and rang very, very true. Lostris has a couple of daughters who, <laughs> and we, we remember at this point that Lostris is regent for her young son, unmarried, widowed, regent her husband is at, like deceased given given the widowness and and his embalmed body is being transported on the boats they're on so <laughs> how exactly she conceived is explained by tater as she was visited at night by the ghost of the pharaoh and they came together as husband and wife while she was still sleeping and then she is now pregnant and it's absolutely not anything you know untoward or immoral and she can totally still be queen regent and it's it's fine it's fine all three of her children are definitely not the generals they're they're definitely you know royal royal children of the pharaoh so that was hilarious and genuinely shocked that anyone bought that story yes so that was interesting and wonderful and everyone just keeps going essentially just going up river and they they capture slaves at one point which was very uncomfortable reading i did not enjoy that particularly and it kind of emphasized it at a couple of different points that egyptian society is built on slavery and a lot of ancient societies did rely very heavily on slavery so it's not it's not weird or unusual to include it right it it would have been weird to not mention and i mean tate is a slave that this is this is a, a whole thing but the way that the african tribes people african people were talked about was yeah racist again we spoke last week about egyptian attitudes towards people who weren't egyptians and i think racism kind of covers it so there were some interesting uncomfortable descriptions there did not massively enjoy but anyway eventually they get to the point of the nile that they were supposed to stop at this is the point where the god happy has, has decreed that they should stay and then he will he she will rebuild their forces until they can go back up north down river 
there we go, to Egypt to kind of take back their land and dispel the Hyksos. So they build a tomb for Pharaoh, which is great. And then Tata gets captured by some Ethiopian people and turns out one of the people is a king. And also the prince, Mem, falls in love at first sight with a woman called Masara, who is the princess of a different king who's been taken prisoner by this, this other king. And it's all very, lots of court intrigue, and except it's court intrigue framed in like tribal chieftain type dynamics. And Tater is very, very disparaging about the whole thing and, and the society that he's been captured by. So that was, again, weird, interesting reading. Ultimately, Tata learns the language, talks to Masara, discovers all that's going on, and she is magically in love with, with Prince Mem. So he conspires to escape, go to Masara's dad, persuade him to take him back to Lostris and the rest of the Egyptian forces. And it, it's a whole thing. They end up defeating the Ethiopian king who is holding Masara captive, and then Masara gets married to Mem, and then everybody goes back to Egypt. Hooray! Big jazz hands. There's obviously so much, so much that I'm missing out. But very long story short, they get back to Egypt and they drive the Hyksos out of Fantine and then out of Thebes. And we learn and realize that actually this is going to be something that is going for decades. They're not going to just be able to drive the Hyksos out immediately as they thought. And I missed out the best part with the horses. I can't believe I did that. How did I do that? At one point, when they're traveling through Africa, they capture some gnus. But apparently gnus have this horrible virus sickness thing where they just get mucus everywhere and it's transmitted to the horses and they get so sick and they die because they can't breathe because of all this mucus stuff. And Tata invents the tracheotomy and trains all of the grooms to give the horses this operation so they can still breathe. And it turns out that once the horses have recovered from it, those that survive are much stronger and resilient and kind of resistant to the disease. So what they do when they go back to the Hyksos is they take a bunch of canoes with them and very sneakily capture some horses, get them infected with, they call it the yellow strangler or something, the, the virus. They infect some Hyksos horses with this virus and then kind of return the sick horses to the Hyksos grooms. So then all of the Hyksos herds are horribly, horribly sick. And that's how they manage to succeed driving the Hyksos out of Thebes because all of their horses are sick. So they're, they don't really have enough chariots to repel the invasion. So Tanis dies, which is sad. I realized he dies significantly like before this, this whole thing happens. <laughs> I know, sorry, everyone's laughing. I'm like, I just, I just remembered this thing. This is quite a crucial pot, pl plot point that I forgot. He died in Ethiopia trying to kill one of the, the Ethiopian kings and is very sad. <laughs> and Tata switches his body for the pharaoh's body so that Tanis gets, gets buried in this beautiful tomb with all this great stuff. And then <laughs> the pharaoh gets buried in what was going to be Tanis's tomb. And he doesn't tell anyone except like Tanis second in command. That was awesome and amusing. And I think quite well deserved. And then on the trip back, Lostris is very, very sick. It, it's described as she started to, to go downhill after Tanis dies. And it's not like cancer is not the name given to it because obviously that's a, a modern term that would be really anachronistic. But the way it's described, it sounds an awful lot like cancer. And she makes it to Thebes. She gets back to her city and then she dies as well, which 
was was sad. That was a sad bit. Mm. But she does get home, which is nice. Lexi's just there laughing. It's a, it's a good thing we don't have video because this whole thing is, is a real tour de force of me just ranting and Lexi sitting there giggling to herself. I mean, you know what? Put it this way. I love that you give us as detailed as you can remember summaries. And I applaud you because, again, this is a very big book. A lot happens. A lot yeah. happens. And the thing is, I always describe the book as it's kind of like... A, a more modern version of like a tale of two cities where it's just it's big and then because so much of the content is also left to just like descriptive elements you feel like a big chunk is spent on just hearing about what something looks like or what's happening mm -hmm. and not you know not super action-packed but but it's still like a chunk like a solid chunk of book that you have to get through so it does kind of disjoint your timeline because you're like okay so now this happens but now also we're going to take this like super long interlude to describe x y and z and then you're like oh god so half the book is like exposition it's just exposition so so you know kudos to trying to break through all the exposition interspersed and get to like major plot points so you know megan you know what you did a good job thank you did i, did I for either of you did i miss things that are necessary to flag up before we get any further blue sword yeah blue sword blue sword blue i sword. mean so the whole so the whole reason that tanis dies essentially is so when he gets when they're when they're down into nubia tanis is fighting and then he looks across and he sees the war chief with this beautiful blue sword and so for my impression like i i've never really known exactly what it was other than if it's blue i think it's made of lapis lazuli like i don't know what other no, uh, the way it's described it i think it's an iron sword steel or iron because well, it, it iron or steel because it cuts tanis bronze sword in half so i think i think what he's trying to do is describe the shiny blue gray look that you get with with steel but I don't mm. think steel is around that early, so maybe it's iron. See, that's that's what always confused me. All I know is he said it's a legendary blue sword. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just take it like literally and be like, blue sword made out of very tough material. I have no idea if you can even make a blade out of lapis lazuli. All I know is it would be quite heavy, and but it would look real impressive. It would look like, very it cool. Would, yeah. It would look amazing. So essentially, Tannis is like, I've never seen a more beautiful weapon in my life. And I am a soldier. And I must have said sword. So when they go and they're about to rescue Masara and Prince Memnon is there. And he's like, okay, I will make my stand. You get the, the prince and princess. I want my sword. And that's why he dies. Because essentially, in trying to wrench the sword from his enemy, he has to essentially like shove it roughly out of his hands, but also into his armor, which then kind of impales him. And it's very sad. And so it takes the joy out because you're like, Tannis died getting the sword, but he has it, but he gives it to Memnon. I don't know. There's there's several, you know, smaller things within there, like the horses, again, major plot point. And Taita has this beautiful relationship with Hui, which is his like second oh, in command. And Hui was one of the former Shrikes captured in part one of the book. And he is kind of described as this adorable ruffian who is obsessed with Tannis. And 
But because Huey was foreign, again, he grew up with horses and he actually teaches Chaita how to ride them, how to tame them. And you have this beautiful, I think one of my favorite parts, obviously, as a horse person is that I always loved that you get this really long section of the book where he's just describing his like mm. sweet little quote unquote domestic life setup with Huey and raising their little herd. And you have his two favorite horses. You have Patience and Blade, which I loved. And I was like, those are amazing horse names. So if I ever have horses, I will do that. And they pull the chariot. And then eventually when he gets a second team of horses, you have Rock and Chain, which are interesting names. Again, <laughs> not my favorites, but like, so yeah. And then it becomes a whole thing where high up, patience and blade, go. And then you just, you get all like a rush of happiness and you're like, yay. But I do love how Prince Memnon is described as the only person other than Taita who would ever dare ride upon the back of a horse without a chariot and actually there's this really fun sequence of tanis being super competitive and one calling them like demon beasts and hating horses but two he would always tease him and be like well my ships are faster than your beasts and then you get this great sequence of basically when he when Taita makes the first chariots and he takes Tannis along, he, he basically starts to enjoy himself and then boom, the wheels explode and then he goes flying and then he, and then he just becomes a grumpy child and is like, no, I refuse. I will not ever come back to this unless you fix it. But even then, I hate it. I hate it. Um, which then brings me so much joy when eventually the problem is fixed and... Taita, of course, is the only charioteer that Tannis will ever trust to ride with. So it's 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 a wonderful dynamic. I love what the horses part brings. Again, you do have several graphic like scenes of horses being impaled by elephant tusks and dying and arrows and you know, it gets me ugly crying every freaking time. Yeah, there's so much to happen. But the thing that I, I actually, this time around, was interested in was the sort of the description of how they find their way down the cataracts. I'm like, I'm not an Egyptologist, but we have one with us. Brianna, could Egyptians, if they really want to, could they like that easily go down? Because they made, I mean, they, they were like, yes, we had to do this. But also I was like, that seems too easy. Okay. Yeah, that that's that's a really good question. I mean, they're going through several of them to get all the way to. I guess they're going to the Etbara branch. That's like, that's more than four cataracts. So they're going beyond Jebel Barakol. I mean, the Egyptians did sail, and it's probably difficult to travel there by chariot or horse or whatever because of the the landscape. the The, the cliffs are much closer to the Nile than they are in Egypt. You know, the farther down you go. But they didn't have like these massive barges that you find in River God. The, the ships are sleeker. I mean, they did have some massive ships when they were going down the Red Sea. But to my knowledge, they, they didn't really have that much of an issue sailing through. I think also they might have traveled when there was the flood, which might make it considerably easier because there are a lot of, I've been down to Aswan and it is very rocky down there. And it's also very choppy waters, I should point out. I was on a Faluka and I was terrified because 
we kept like almost capsizing and I don't know how to swim. So I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to die in Aswan. He definitely dramatized it quite a lot in the book, but that's fine. I like the way he, he describes all of that stuff. You know, I, I really appreciate that exposition because he does describe the horses and it's like you're seeing a horse for the first time. And it's just really, it's really cool how he, he's able to, to do that. And it's almost like you're literally seeing what he's doing. So the actions and, and the, the animals and different things, I think it's just really magical what he can do with his his words. For all its faults, you know, having like racist language in parts, <laughs> he does such a good job in describing certain things in like a gorgeous, detailed, loving manner. I mean, really, yeah. the detail. I've never, ever read anything else who's described the excitement and the love and the just the beauty of horses the way that it's done in this oh. book and i don't know if i ever will read something that because <laughs> i don't know i I'm, i can't tell i'm like does does wilbur smith is he a horse dude does he love horses because who is going to put this loving detail if you're not like inherently a horse person anyway any other big beats or plot points or exciting things i did realize that i forgot to mention that lord intef finally is killed that's pretty major <laughs> yeah it's pretty major yep Yep. He, he has like a standoff with Taita, right? He does. They're both on chariots and it's as they're escaping Elephantine and they've got Lustrous and Memnon and Tanis and Taita all in one chariot. It's a lot of people. And Tanis is described <laughs> as being essentially out of commission because he's riding a horse and he's just too terrified to do anything except hold on, which was a delightful <laughs> image. And Titus like driving and it's all very exciting and they think they're going to be caught. And then the Hyksos charioteer essentially boxes himself in and they're trying to shoot everyone. And Intef's yelling all these horrific threats at his daughter. Yeah, very, very unpleasant. And Taita essentially destroys the chariot, then wheels his back around and comes back and Intef is, is on the ground and, and trying to escape and Lostris is saying, don't kill him, he's my father. And I'm sitting there reading this, thinking to myself, why? What <laughs> possible reason could you have for keeping this man alive? Yes, he's your father. He's as evil, I think, as you can as you can get in yeah. in a in a book without it being comical, mustache twirling territory and, and actually I, th I think if he had a moustache he would be twirling it and tying people to rail tracks and Taita essentially ignores her and it's it, he says it's the first and only time that I disobeyed a direct order from my mistress and he runs him down and I think that was Satisfying. quite well deserved yeah I, I was yes. not I was not sad about that yeah. <laughs> The part for me that, that, that I, re I really lost it at the very end is Lostris reveals to Taita that, that she's aware that he's been in love with her this whole time. And then she tells him... Maybe next time the gods will be kinder. Like yeah. She says, she says I've, I've only loved two men in my entire life and you're one of them. Maybe next time the yes. gods will be kinder to us. And I'm like, huh. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> yes, apart from the whole... I raised you as my daughter sort of thing and, you know, taking taking liberties. Still don't like his attitude toward her. But at, at the same time, I was just like, when, when I read that, that's when I busted up crying on the train. <laughs> First time I read that, because I was like, oh my God, he finally got the reveal that he wanted. I mean, it was just so 
sad. There's there's no time that I don't ugly cry at some point while reading or listening. And usually the end is one of them. When Tannis dies, obviously, if you transported Pharaoh's body all the way, all the way, months and months down, you couldn't do the same for Tannis when you're going home. But no, apparently they, they spent all this time building the most sumptuous, rich tomb with the all the treasure of the great pharaoh mimosa so they were like you know what we're gonna just leave him here i actually hadn't picked up on that you're right why not bring tanis back to egypt you got the pharaoh all the way up there you can like it's it's going to take far less time to get back down again so just take him well maybe because they couldn't embalm him it's it's a bit easier to carry somebody if they've been in dried out and their organs removed He'd be like turning into liquid. True. That would be quite gross. But I thought that they traveled on their barge with like a shit ton of natron salt. Well, yeah, but they were there for a couple of decades, weren't they? Do they but, have any left? Yeah, because when they first came with Pharaoh, because they still had time and could spend a, a bit of time in Elephantine before fleeing, I remember that Pharaoh was allowed to go through his embalming process and then when they transported him down, he was already in his sarcophagus, but he was already bandage wrapped, done, 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 just to make sure that he wasn't extra gonna stink or something. They described there was like a vat or extra natron salt that they were like, oh yeah, we could just throw on him just in case. So I'm like, why don't you use that for Tannis? <laughs> Oh, I don't remember that part. Oh, see, you guys, this is this is the thing with this book. It's so massive and there's so much in it that we don't remember everything, even after we've just literally read it. I know, I know, because I'm also like, I don't remember what part of the book, because it all strings together and, and, and the through line is so hard. I mean, okay, so let's assume they didn't have more nature and salt. Fine. Okay. But still, there were people going to die along the journey anyway because they, were, they had old people. They had probably sick people. So I'm like, you can't tell me that all the Egyptians, when they got down there, were suddenly like, when someone dies, we're just going to off them. We're going to throw them in the Nile. Like, bam, no more nature salt, no more mummification. Well, I mean, that's pretty accurate, though, if you're not... If you're if you're out in battle and they probably just bury you in the sand, dropping people's bodies in the Nile, I'm not so sure about. Was everyone embalmed? No, only if you could afford it. And children, for example, would be buried in the floors under houses, which I also think happened in Western Asia. But <laughs> Lexi's giving me this this very disturbed face. <laughs> I mean, that's terrifying. I don't want to think about children buried under houses. <laughs> like, so that was actually a pretty common thing. You get it in like yeah. Chattelhoyuk. You have yeah, like ancestor yeah. cults with people buried beneath the floors. And uh, also they would have reed mat burials where they'll have a reed mat and they just wrap you up in that and then stuff you in the sand. So not everybody would have this elaborate mummification process or even real graves some sometimes uh, like at marna for example in the south cemetery they found coffins just buried directly into the sand so there weren't actual tombs necessarily so yeah on a battlefield especially not battlefield but they're, they're traveling like this and they're not setting up shop anywhere because they're going all the way down to where the nile forks that's quite a long distance if they had settled in a place for a while, they might build a cemetery, but along the route, you just have to throw throw some sand on them and then <laughs> off you go. 
<laughs> and Lost just makes a really big thing as they're traveling of we're not making permanent settlements. We're, we're Essentially, we're camping until we go back to Egypt. That's true. I don't know. I'm just like, maybe they literally just felt like if we're going to go to the trouble to build this sumptuous tomb and leave all the gold here, we have to use it. Although I'm still just like, you could still put Pharaoh in there and still try to take Tannis back with you, but okay. <laughs> you know, maybe that's just me. I think also the, the problem would be that, because I think part of the whole doing that was that Tannis would be able to be buried in the king's tomb, which would be a little bit more challenging to accomplish if you brought both bodies back. But also, you know, he's just writing a plot. So. <laughs> we might be thinking about this too deeply. We are thinking about it too deeply, but the, the, the one thought I've always had is, you could just leave Pharaoh there. You could take Tannis home and you could eventually, when the Hyksos are gone, you could put him in the big old tomb in Thebes that was very sumptuous that we spent so much time in the first half of the book talking about. You could just repurpose that, but it wouldn't work with the plot. So fine, fine. We're, we're glossing over the whole Memnon thing. Memnon. So I love that his little prince princeling name is Prince Mem. And, and Taita has like his own little lullaby song, like a devoted daddy slash uncle slash whatever tutor. You know what? The whole relationship reminds me of like Merlin and Prince Arthur. I can see that. I'm just a humble tutor who teaches you everything and I'm way more self-involved than your foster father or your real father who is dead. You know, I don't know, just cause you know, you have the dynamic where Tannis can never tell Memnon he's his father. So then he acts like his favored uncle, mentor, but also Taita really steps into the fatherly role. I don't know. It's a very cute dynamic. I love Prince Mem, although he does really odd things sometimes. I liked him. I thought he was well-written as a small kid. And then it, I thought that the progression of him from small mischievous child to slightly older mischievous child but with the awareness of i am also the ruler of the whole of egypt you can't refuse me and seeing him like push that boundary with his guardians i thought that was really cool and really interesting and then he grows up into a good decent pharaoh it was it was nice i think my favorite parts are always like when you have little mem and then he tries to act all grown up and then whenever he doesn't get what he wants he reverts to but tata i need the help please and then i love how he's always like i am powerless against his charms that is cute but wait okay brianna as an egyptologist how common was of a name was Memnon and was that more of an actual like princeling name? Isn't that a Greek name? I don't remember. I think it's Greek mythology. It's definitely not Egyptian and like most of the names in there are not Egyptian. <laughs> that was a little confusing for me because yes, you're right. It's Greek. Tennis, Lostris, none of them are. Yeah. No. And the king's name Mamos and then Memnon becomes Tamos. Those are drawing from the actual Egyptian names Ahmos and Kamos, but Mamos and Tamos were non-existent. But Kamose is the one who, well, he didn't do very much, but he wasn't king for very long, but he was one of the kings, like the, the second king who was leading an army against the Hyksos. And then Ahmos, his brother, we think it was his brother, is the one who became king after the uh, two years or so that Kamose reigned, and he's the one who kicked out the Hyksos, finally. 
Memnon, yeah, that's not an Egyptian name. <laughs> Taita, well, Taita is not Egyptian anyway. But Tennis, no. Lostris, definitely not. But the thing that makes me laugh is Hui. Hui is definitely an Egyptian name. <laughs> Very popular Egyptian name, in fact. The Viceroy of Tutankhamun, for example, was named Hui. He's not Egyptian in the book. What is going on? <laughs> Why? So, I don't know. That's one thing I always get confused about because clearly he's done excellent research, but like I, I didn't, I don't really understand the whole. Let's not give real names. No, Intef. Intef is a name, and it's a very, very popular name in the 13th, 17th dynasties. Who else has a, a name that's actually Egyptian? No, that's not Egyptian either. I don't even know where that it's like that also sounds greek though doesn't it <laughs> he's such a great character i love him i would say largely yes we don't have any text from that time period in nubia because they didn't have a written language we don't get names from nubia region until much later, we, we know the names of the 25th dynasty kings, for example, but this is because they adopted Egyptian hieroglyphs. So they're able to, to write their names using Egyptian hieroglyphs. So we know the names of their gods, especially when we get into the Meroitic phase. And we also know names of kings and queens at that point. But like during this time, the second intermediate period, this is the Kerma kingdom. So it's a very powerful Nubian kingdom, which is based at Kerma, which is around the third cataract. And it was a very powerful kingdom. They actually took back Lower Nubia because the Egyptians controlled Lower Nubia. And then as we approach sometime in the 13th dynasty onwards, they recaptured that land and they had this massive kingdom, which then was completely squashed by Ahmose. Is it weird that this kingdom is completely omitted from River God? Would we expect the Egyptian party to come into contact with this super powerful Nubian kingdom. That is quite odd. I think because it's not something that's largely studied, for one, unfortunately. And two, I think that there is this, I mean, let's let's bring racism up again. There's this notion that any African civilization that isn't ancient Egypt isn't as important or as you know, significant historically, worthy of, of of note or anything like that, you know, that I think that's a part of it, a huge part of it, why it wasn't included. And also, I think he really wanted to portray the Egyptians as these superheroes, really, to kind of make it seem like they're the greatest people ever. I think one of the reasons why I was so uncomfortable reading about the slaving expedition, apart from the fact that it's a slaving expedition, the Shaluk are described as right. your stereotypical savages living in mud huts. And they have a super yeah. primitive language of only, what, 500 words or something? And they don't write and they're just barbaric and they have this bloodlust when they go into battle. And it's just, well, it's massively racist. And it is knowing that actually there was, and, and like, this comes up in, in other places, it's a, a fact there were other nations, well-developed nations in Africa, in the rest of the Near East at the same time, making the only people that the Egyptians come into contact with essentially savages, because even the, the Ethiopian tribes that come in uh, later in the book, they have a, a city and they live up in the mountains. 
but they're still contrasted really negatively with the Egyptians, which, you know, it's told from Tatus' perspective. We'd probably anticipate that. It's what Egyptian narratives, in my limited experience, do. But it's still uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, and this is during the apartheid time in South Africa. And he's from, the author's from Zimbabwe, and he comes from a colonialist family. And whenever I, I read this part, I just think of that. And I don't know if that does inform his portrayal of the Nubian people or what. I don't, I don't know. But that's what I think of when we look at this part of the book. I mean, I think that if if this is like his life experience and what he's living through, like how can it not, your life informs kind of how you would tell a story or what you would think about or imagine. Even if it's not like deliberate, I'm sure there's some sort of just implicit bleeding effect, bleed over. There will be biases at work there regardless of if they're conscious or not. But also just in general in Egyptology, the, the Nubian kingdoms have really been underplayed for decades and decades. And it's only recently with Nubiology that's becoming more and more important or, or you know, given the attention that it deserves, finally, that we're, we're bringing to light the, these ancient civilizations in, uh, in Sudan. I mean, we're doing a much better job of that now. And yeah, I mean, I just, I just think that too often it's been overshadowed by Egypt. And when you have this civilization that's building these massive pyramids and massive temples and all of that stuff, and then you have these others in Nubia that are building things with mud brick that doesn't survive so well, that there is this, this idea that, oh, they're not nearly as civilized as the Egyptians are. And it's, it's really sad. The Nubians you know, built pyramids, didn't they, though? Yes, yes, but not at this time period. Yeah, it's much later. I mean, no one wants to talk about it, but eventually the Nubians come up and they invade Egypt and then become yes. <laughs> arrows and have a dynasty themselves. But yes, not in this time period. And they control the entire Egyptian so-called empire, which is actually even larger than what the Egyptians control because the Egyptians didn't control all the way down into Napata where, where the, the 25th dynasty kings come from. And, and even that dynasty, I don't think people give enough credit to the, the Nubian kings of the 25th dynasty. It, it's included in, sometimes included in the third intermediate period. And whenever people bring up the intermediate periods, they kind of portray them as this period of decline when during the 25th dynasty kings rule, it, it was definitely not a time period of decline definitely not well it's inherent in the wording calling it an intermediate period i wanted to ask something that pops up right at the very end of the book when they go back to egypt and they find the hyksos and it's been i lose track of of the exact chronology but it's it feels like it's been a decade or more since they left that egypt has been under hyksos rule and one of the things that is mentioned is that the hyksos have kind of Egyptianized and they're ruling as Egyptians would and they're obviously intermarrying and there are, there are people there who are now Egyptian with Hyksos parentage. And I wanted to ask, when you get these intermediate periods with Egypt being ruled by non-native Egyptian rulers, I understand it's difficult to get at because of the, the material culture that we have left and how little generally we know about ordinary life in the ancient world as a whole. But 
does life essentially continue as normal? Are people expected to become more Hyksos or, or do you see things like the Hyksos becoming more Egyptian instead? You know, there's a great example I'd like to give to answer that question. My, my former boss at my graduate school did his dissertation on first intermediate period town site at Abydos. And his research question was, did anything change during that time period because there was this, you know, huge problem with power shifts and all of this stuff. And his finding was nothing changed <laughs> among the people because the common people, you know, you got people who are farmers, who are merchants, who are uh, tradesmen, craftsmen. They're not affected because their work goes on and it's, it's the elite people that would be affected. You know, and so you know, in, in terms of Hyksosifying people, I don't think that happened. There was definitely influence, cultural influence, especially well, technological influence. The chariot and the bow that the Hyksos use in the book are definitely, and the horse are definitely introduced by the Hyksos to Egypt, and we have this in the art. And the Minoans also settled in the exact same city that the Hyksos had as their capital, and we have remains of a Minoan palace there. Where we have the, the Nubian and Libyan kings, they seem to, and we, we only know stuff basically from what art survives, they, they depicted themselves mostly in the traditional Egyptian art style, Egyptian clothing. The, the Nubian kings had a different headgear, which was like this cap crown with these two uraeus snakes on the on the crown on the forehead. The the Libyan kings pretty much were just solid Egyptian, but this is probably because they rose in power after decades and decades and decades of living in the delta. And for them, I don't think that there's any kind of art that distinguishes them from Egyptians. What distinguishes them is their names. The Libyan kings keep the Libyan name. So we have really weird names <laughs> of, of those kings. The Nubian kings also keep their own names. So we have very obvious foreigner names, but mostly there is this, this kind of Egyptianization of people when they come to Egypt and then rule from Egypt. And even the Nubian mercenaries that were hired in Egypt and they lived in Egypt, they would adopt Egyptian clothing, but then in the arts, they would still have some kind of Nubian signifier, like a red sash or darker skin color, perhaps. But with the Hyksos, the Hyksos, it's very difficult because there's not the material culture for the Hyksos is very slim. Confused with the Hittites because maybe it's because they both begin with an H. Maybe it's also because we don't know a lot about them. But like as an Egyptologist, do you find that people outside these fields confuse them? Right. So, um, yeah. Egypt. Um, and this dates to the Middle Kingdom. So they were. They were there much sooner than one who has made that mistake of Hyksos being the Hittites. I can see, um, but also I want to give a brief history of what Hyksos actually are. Um, the name Hyksos is Greek, and it is the Greek of the phrase ruler of kind of power. It does necessarily, so it could have been like anyone could have come up with the spoked wheel. Have to be him. That didn't add an awful lot to the story for me. Um, or the like the the big seating stands that he mm -hmm. devised for people to watch processions and pageants like that, that there was no him except um 
like actual genius and like it just ugh, I didn't this thing didn't for me add an awful lot to the character could have made him smart and astute and give him this mystical uh thing and that would have been enough I, I don't think that you needed orders on top of it that's true although I think by this point he probably knew he already knew make it into his and i'm pretty sure that like he probably mapped out like the next step and because the thing is like this was told obviously in its own timeline but then all the other books are told when like taita is mm -hmm. already the main magus he's like 98 years old he's not young and he has that mystical property around him to explain why he's able to mm -hmm. be there during like her like memnon's grandchildren and so if he knew this he had to start the first book with adding in the fact that like oh maybe we don't know he's a mage or a magus now but like there has to be a reason that he's because not only can he invent all the stuff but he's of amun ra and like he can sort of predict stuff growth in in the um ended up happening um we just know that it kind of did <laughs> that's yeah they were definitely portrayed in the art as other by their hairstyle and by their dress um and by the little things that they carried with them but um i don't think they could be confused with hittites at all for you megan what do we think now as a whole because i know at least megan this was your first time reading through the whole novel so like what did you think overall i did enjoy it um as a character taita does irritate me quite a lot um and like i don't it's not it's not necessarily him he is given every single significant thing in the whole book with anyways obviously like they're a main character they're supposed to do the exciting shit but he's so implausible um i'm like give someone else something to it does to make him you know the genie wanted to just really thinking very highly of the book that was really cool <laughs> like it for a reason i really like the descriptions uh, because it makes it very immersive and as somebody who, who plays her then because i think if it was in third person uh too irritating but as first person you know write it off as a him himself and uh <laughs> which is you know i mean <laughs> that's fair i i really love the writing style because i'm not somebody who I, I often don't read modern fiction because i don't like it when authors get to call it um grammatically imaginative i don't like that and i tend to read a lot of stuff written like the 1800s um so, so this book reads like an 1800s imaginative grammar. That was a that was a great sentence, um, but uh, but I like games for the immersion experience, like Witcher Three and obviously Assassin's Creed. Um, I really appreciate the immersion quality of this book. Um, I mean, it, it was definitely a, a pleasure re-experiencing it. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, there's a reason that it's one of my favorites. How about you, Lexi? Did you get anything out of this, what, seventh experience with it? <laughs> the seventh experience. Um, I mean, I hadn't read a year, I want to say maybe. So yeah, it was always good. It's, it's always good because it's like encountering an old friend again, because I also 
I think I, I, I know I started reading it too young. And I, I think if my knew what I was reading at that age, I don't know if they would love, but here's the thing. It was a book that caught my eye because when I was growing up in our house, we had a massive wall of bookshelves. And I would always do this as a young kid because I liked to copy my parents who read a lot, but also I just wanted to look smart or whatever. So I remember like whenever we would have guests or something as a little kid, I would like run down to this huge wall of bookshelves. And because I knew this is where my parents kept like their big books, I was like, okay, I'll just always choose like a random one that has a cool sort of front cover. And then when you have people coming over, they will find me seated with a book open and I probably wasn't actually reading it. But I remember it started because I grabbed River God because it had like a really interesting front jacket cover. And I remember I, I grabbed it and then the guests were coming. So I opened the book and just started reading like half a page. And then I was like, actually, this sounds really good. Maybe I should really read this book. And I was maybe 11 or 12 at the time. So it took yeah, so it took me like a year before I really was like, no, 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 I will read it. But eventually, like, so maybe at 13, I, I, I sat down and I read it and I was like, oh, this is excellent. And so from then, yeah, I, um, yeah, every time I read it, I feel like it changes a bit because I notice more underlying things the more I learn. Um, and I, yeah, like, I, I, I still love the story as many problems as it has with it. Um, you guys definitely pointed out new issues that I hadn't, or not even, but yes, issues, but just different perspectives on stuff that, you know, I thought was like well-worn territory for me, um, kind of pointing out the different side of sort of like the Taita Lostris dynamic, um, was really eye-opening just because I, again, maybe it was my personal experience, but like, I didn't see it the way you did, Megan, but like realizing that that is a way that it could be perceived by a lot of people. I'm like, yeah, actually, and that makes it even more concerning. But um, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And I'm kind of like, oh, no, maybe uh, I kind of wish I didn't know that because that makes it creepy. And I don't like that. Um, but yeah, no, overall, like, it just kind of reinforces that I, I really have always liked this book. As Brianna said, it's written in a way that like most modern literature is not written. And I really like all the sort of details in the exposition. It's gorgeous. Um, and it's unique because I've tried to read other books that are just as massive with a lot of details that I don't love. Like, again, A Tale of Two Cities. I read the whole ass, like, actual thing. And I really didn't like it because I was like, no, 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 th this is too long. It's not. I get bored. But like this, it keeps me centered. And I don't know if that's a combination of the way it was written and the setting. But if anything, every time I read it, I just think, why did I not become an Egyptologist? Like I should, I just, I've, I've erred in my professional path. <laughs> Although, you know what? I do have a final question for you, Brianna. And that is, as an Egyptologist reading this, do you get the impression that like other Egyptologists would hate this book because of its inaccuracies or would they actually like it because it's so immersive in like Egypt and sort of the one, you know, shows off like Egypt is wondrous. Oh, well, I mean, you know how academics are. <laughs> You'll have the ones that love it, the ones that hate it just because they want to hate everything that's popular. You know, the ones that kind of scoff at imagination. 
because there are there are even those that will that will criticize the mummy the movie with Brendan like what <laughs> can't criticize that masterpiece but they're out there they do it but uh, I think on the whole I think people our age um, not so much the the older generations but you know our age and, uh, and around there probably would have more appreciation for it than than an older generation maybe i don't know this is just me saying things um i know of one other egyptologist that liked the story i think she's read it and she liked it a lot um but i think i don't know if too many egyptologists are aware of this book um interestingly enough like I'm, I'm working on this this project for pop culture, and we had like a thousand entries in our database already, and nobody had yet written about River God. I'm like what? <laughs> Let me get in there. <laughs> so you know, I mean, um, I think weirdly enough, it's, it's not really something that's known. I mean, I don't know. This is just just me in my own little bubble saying this. I, I could be completely wrong about everything I just said. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But for me personally, I think it's it's a it's a lovely little gateway into Egypt, provided they have the time to read it. It's excellent, but it is a monster. Well, then a little yes or no to end us off. But would either of you be likely to recommend this book going forward to people? Always, 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 I will. <laughs> To wrap up there, everybody, please do join us next week for a new episode. We will be looking at the movie Gods of Egypt with another guest host. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts on River God. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this and I, I'm glad I could be the, the inaugural guest for this since it was what got me interested in Egypt in the first place. Well, we just knew we had to have you on, especially when you and I like oh. geeked out massively. And I was like, oh my God, someone else who loves the book as much as I do, we have, we have to have her. <laughs> oh, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Mm -hmm.